वेलकम टू सिंह टॉक Sin talkers around the table today discuss the recognition and identification. We'll think about the phenomena of recognizing and identifying in the natural world using ideas from biology, chemistry, philosophy, ecology and ornithology. How do living beings carve the world up into different kinds? How do life forms recognize who kins and non-kins are? what role do olfactory cues play in some of these situations what are the different mechanisms for discrimination and in this context what is the difference between a metaphor and a formula are some of these capabilities in internal language genetically coded and if yes how and what is the long term future of this phenomena We're pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Dr. Shannon Olson, who's the head of the Nice Group at NCBS in Bangalore, and they study how organisms, particularly insects, identify objects in nature. Professor A. Raghuram Raju, who teaches philosophy at the University of Hyderabad, and also farms in his village near Tirupati. and Dr. Asad Rahmani who is an ornithologist and a conservationist and works and studies the behavior of certain bird species and is also working in the areas of conserving certain birds habitat is the ex director of BNHS in Mumbai Shannon maybe we set the ball rolling with you uh to start in a very particular place um of when an insect is born when it just comes into the world what happens how does it know how to go about life and however long or short that life might be and uh, does it come pre-wired innate with certain abilities and certain abilities to recognize the world around around it what is that world like take us take us through that journey mm. i think to discuss that it it might be pertinent to start out talking about wh- why any organism would need to identify yes. things right yeah so at least you can think of at least four things at least i can off the top of my head one is that certainly the world is very complex mm-hmm. right if 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 this was a virtually void world with only one object in it mm-hmm. then there would be no need to identify anything because there would be only one thing there so that's the first thing right there's many things so they have to be discriminated from each other sure. the second is that another thing is that these things are not all the same some are good and some are bad meaning that some potentially could kill you right so there's a need to identify objects in the environment because some could be dangerous and of course some could be very helpful to to your fitness they could mm. be food or they could help you mate or lay eggs or whatever that the case may be so sure. that's the second thing the th- the third thing is also that organisms at least life as as we know it is finite right mm-hmm. so one could imagine that if you had an infinite amount of time in order to locate something that 
you could just kind of randomly move about and come in contact with it and try to do something with it and it either would work or wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that we have a, a finite amount of energy, right? So we can't also do that infinitely, even if we could live forever. They're both energy and time constraints. Correct, correct. Yes. And that's actually, when you brought up insects, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I think they're so fascinating because compared to a lot of other organisms, they generally have rather short lifespans on the order mm -hmm. of days and weeks for many organisms. Mm -hmm. And they also have an incredible energy expenditure in that the majority of insects actually fly. And mm -hmm. flight is, as, as you would know, is a tremendous energy constraint. Mm -hmm. So And so obviously they can't fly around forever and they don't live forever. So they, essentially they have to, as soon as they're born or as soon as they emerge from the pupil case, as it may be, mm -hmm. they have to immediately be able to find either nutrients or a mate or, you know, those two particularly. Sure. And then at least if you're a female, then you have to find a good place for your babies to grow up. So you have to lay your eggs in an appropriate location. Yeah. So being born in the sense or being have uh, an innate recognition of certain things in your environment, such as food sources, mates, and egg-laying sites can be very advantageous if you have a very short lifespan. And the other thing is, is they a lot of insects the exception of being things like bees and ants and others, are not social, right? So they also don't have anyone to teach them, What, unlike us, right, who are taught. So there's no notion of parenting there. <sighs> no, I mean, uh, if you think about a, a butterfly, for example, right, mm -hmm. she lays her eggs on a plant mm -hmm. and those eggs hatch and the larvae come out and the lar there's, no, there's no adult around mm. and they are equally the same age so they're not able to teach each other, right? <laughs> so, so, and as far as we know, there is, of course, there is some group interaction, of course, um, in all organisms there is interactions, but, but in the sense that they can't, of course, teach each other the importance of things because they're equally ignorant of their world or it's knowledgeable of their world. So so that's another thing. And that brings probably the fourth reason to identify things, which is communication, right? Mm -hmm. You, of course, have to be able to recognize and identify things if you have to describe them to someone else, right? Mm -hmm. I have a six-year-old daughter, and there's no way I could teach her what things are if I didn't know what they were first. So communication yes. is, a tremendous, uh, is a tremendous factor mediating our ability to identify and recognize things, so... So it's very interesting. Yeah. So this is very interesting, but how does it happen? How does it happen? Well, so I'm sure it's not an easy question. So that's that's why you identify. So first of all, to answer how it happens, then you have to think about what what should we identify, right? Yeah, what what kinds, should happen? What what should what should happen? What objects are important? And that of course depends on the organism's ecology, right? So mm -hmm. depending on what kinds of things they eat, where where they live, do they live above ground or in the water? Of course, they're going to identify different things. I, I often have used the example that humans can't smell cockroach pheromones because Yes. We why don't need to. Why should we, right? We have no inherent need to. Yes. Um so so that limits what they can detect. Now, how can they detect it? Well, there's an old theory um, from the 1960s. It's not very old, but it's old in terms of ecology um, called the information processing hypothesis. And mm -hmm. this is essentially says that organisms can't identify things 
which their nervous systems do not allow them to identify. Wow. Right? Wow. It's a very mm. simple, it's actually a very simple idea, but yeah. it's incredibly difficult to test. So actually, it still remains relatively untested to this day. And it's amazing you're linking it to the nervous system. Well, of course. I mean, that's that's how organisms essentially identify things, is using yeah. their nervous system. Yeah. Uh, so, so even even a, a, an animal with like a bacteria right which essentially doesn't have a nervous system per se it certainly has receptors it certainly has the ability to detect things like sugar molecules and it will orient towards those sugar molecules mm. so mm. that is a form of very simple recognition and and so for more complex recognition of objects say or or objects with many features right a central nervous system helps in that so in some way you're saying that these organisms are neurally wired to recognize when they come into the world? Yes, uh, yes, they? absolutely. I mean there is there's a lot of evidence for innate recognition of certain things. I mean this this one of the simplest forms that I can is the cockroach pheromone, right? They they are they are innately able to recognize the scent of the opposite sex. Mm. You know, they don't have to be taught what that is. They don't mm. have to have any prior experience of that. Mm. They're able to just if you keep them in a box their whole lives and you release them and they come in contact with that chemical, they, they will perform do. a stereotyped behavior. Sure. Which is our indication from an animal behavior perspective that they recognize it, that they identify this cue. Very interesting. Ramani, why don't we travel to oh. the world that you're very familiar with oh. and then you know we'll we'll go to Raghuram yes. Raju. Yes. Maybe okay. going to the precautional chicks. Pre- yes, you know, yes, something, yes, something yes, very interesting very, happens there, doesn't it? Yes. Correct. Well, it's very interesting because in birds it is uh, it is sometimes uh, for many species it is innate behavior but it's also a learned behavior mm-hmm. to recognize the enemies to recognize the food so, so in some species particularly the long living species mm-hmm. uh, so not all birds are not, the same not all birds are same mm-hmm. so in the long living species uh, uh, chicks are taught uh, where to go and I have seen it in few species uh, which I studied like the bustard the chick is almost uh, it follows the mother for almost a year and is it that knows so? yes it and it knows all the places where which is the best place to go um, to search the food which are the enemies and how to avoid the enemies mm. and uh, that sort of a thing and that 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 has been shown in uh, many species but at the same time we also have a innate behavior mm-hmm. uh, for for example uh, megapod uh, which is it's a big bird of almost a chicken size bird mm-hmm. uh, Nicobar megapod and there are 22 species of megapods they uh, they lay their eggs in the in the either in the rotten um, you know the uh, litter or in sometimes in the in the hot places sure, like sure, that for, sure. and they don't incubate the eggs mm-hmm. so and and the incubation period is very long almost uh, 60 days when the chicks come chick come out uh, it does. It, uh, there's no there's no parent there's no, around it. There are no parents around. And it takes almost 24 hours to come out. And when it comes out, when it is on the surface, it flies. It just flies it just away. Comes out and it, flies. Just, it just flies away. And it lives all, all his life on its own. 
because <laughs> so it how does it recognize what is the food what is how to avoid the predators how to which is the best place to roost so so what's the answer remani I, mean, i think it is innate behavior which is no but that's like just getting the instinct, answer like uh, like what we mm. call it is a old word instinct mm-hmm. there's another example like uh, we have got this uh, pied crested cuckoo which mm-hmm. comes to which is a migratory bird which comes from africa mm-hmm. and it comes to, to india and uh, indian subcontinent uh, from africa and it lays eggs in it is a brood parasite cuckoos are quails and cuckoos are generally brood parasite they don't make their own nest so it lays eggs in the babbler's nest or some other species nest hmm. and they they go back they go to uh, africa they, they go to africa the <laughs> chicks are raised by the other species like babblers they are not raised by the uh, pied crested cuckoos sure but the chicks are raised by them and when and then the chicks go back to africa but how, <laughs> they, how do they fly back i mean they no one has taught them so have the babblers <laughs> been to africa <laughs> no, what's no, happening here they don't take the babblers to africa because <laughs> the babblers cannot fly but the so so sometimes it is uh, so what she said i agree that it is also innate behavior it is does, also learned behavior what does I mean, a biologist mean when you say something is innate innate is this sort of a thing that it I mean, comes it through genetic? genetics it, it comes through genetics it it comes through your genes it comes through your what we call it the instinct but in raptors the the larger big eagles mm-hmm. the they teach parents teach the chicks or the juveniles hunting hunting techniques actual mm. hunting mm. and some some chicks are uh, what we call it is stupid they never learn hunting when they grow <laughs> and then the parents throw them out of their nest or they so they many of them die because they never learn hunting properly but some are very some are very individuals are very smart they learn hunting very quickly but they are taught hunting so it is in birds it is both in it all depends on the ecology of the bird it always depends on the uh, the hierarchy of the bird in which which um, trophic level it is living there whether it is a predator or or it is a prey it's very interesting so evolution can shape this yes. very quickly right yes. so when you're you're asking what innate innate means but i mean certainly if you can imagine that you you uh, an organism is born and a group of organisms identifies something that's extremely toxic Well, they will all die. <laughs> so their genes will not they will not get passed on. I think the question right? is one understands why it needs to happen. Right. I think the question and how does it happen? Well, Or how does it happen at all? Well, it has to happen because there already has to have there has to have to be there has to be some sort of a variation in the behavior in the first place, right? If all organisms do exactly the same thing and there's absolutely no variation, then there can't be any adaptation right mm-hmm. so that's a lot of the reasons why i th- think would agree that there's a lot of plasticity in behavior in general mm-hmm. that there is you know you wonder why why do you have so many organisms all doing the same thing and this one does something different but sure. there's there's a lot of advantages to that right because otherwise if it's so highly stereotyped then there can be no adaptation so interesting interesting ragaram raju i think we've been hearing uh the biologists and ornithologists mm-hmm. speak about this in a certain kind of way what do these things mean to you as a philosopher uh, you use words like innate instinct evolution in some ways um what is recognizing for you what is recognizing from the standpoint of the mosquito or um some of the instances that we've used so far let me make a, a beginning please where i I think we have heard two scientists speaking one about 
at uh, the inst- uh, insects and um, the birds the birds but i thought that there should be a third person to speak about animals mm. and we don't have but you know i since i'm a, i also do farming yeah. so i'm tempted to speak about animals but i'll skip it for a minute because <laughs> i am supposed to represent my subject Not at so all. i will look at um, human beings now there are two ways of um, looking at the relation between the animals and human beings mm-hmm. you have in aristotle a clear classification where he makes a gradation from the inanimate to the human beings mm-hmm. that he says for instance there is there is a, a sound is common to birds and human beings mm-hmm. life is common to you know plants uh, uh, you know insects and uh, human beings but speech is what distinguishes not separates human beings from others speech mm-hmm. speech is human specific but don't it doesn't say that it is what separates human being from others other species he says that is what distinguishes If and when you say speech is it a code for language language, language. communication mm-hmm. remembering mm-hmm. then re you know restating the same thing again mm-hmm. these are the very clearly stated uh, points that he mentions sure but when you come to descartes mm-hmm. you have a very clear rejection of this gradation mm-hmm. descartes in discourse on method says that there is a separation between human beings and others he says that even if you take a deaf person the deaf person has an ability to communicate okay but however advanced animals are they have no organism to serve that kind of a purpose which is what he calls his mind so what is important to see is that there is already a different kind of perspective emerging between human beings and others he says that he demarcates human beings from other species whereas aristotle looks at the gradation mm-hmm. so that uh, you know there's there are two kinds of perspectives already available to you sure. in 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 philosophy and they lend a different kind of you know analysis altogether what does it do to the notion of recognition recognition would be see for instance if you look at um, the notion of recognition mm-hmm. recognition is a bird that depends upon cognition recognition it is recognition mm-hmm. so etymologically speaking it is not a primary concern it is a second order inquiry it mm-hmm. is a second level of activity mm-hmm. so there are two things that one comes to have when it comes to recognition mm-hmm. we recognize what we cognized earlier i saw this table today and tomorrow i will recognize this table when this table is brought to some other meeting so i recognize them now i meet you today and now tomorrow when i meet you in a hotel i recognize you so co- recognition is always parasitic on cognition but then there is a serious problem in two different counts mm-hmm. one is when i recognize you do i add something to what i cognized or do i delete something from what i cognized you so it's never truly recognized is it possible to have one to one correspondence that mm-hmm. isn't it 
isn't recognition another cognition mhm mhm one way of looking at it it is no it is a duplicated kind of a thing mm-hmm. where there is a this problem of complexity of adding something to what i cognized yesterday and deleting something from what i cognized yesterday okay what uh, you know hume calls as simple ideas and things like that okay but there is an extreme view so you linking it to the concept of memory in of a way course, yes. yeah and they are saying that for instance there is nothing like recognition mm-hmm. everything is a series of cognitions mm-hmm. now recognition also requires a very important subtext called forgetting mm-hmm. if you have seen something and you did not forget can you say that you recognize it so that is a serious problem that Uh, you know that comes in front of us the that's that's the variation between cognition and recognition is a serious problem in philosophy the second important problem which is of a very serious nature in in the in the in the act of uh, recognition is if you assume for argument sake mm-hmm. that you recognize you know what you cognized earlier there is a particular kind of temporality that you have subscribed to what does that, that mean at t1 i cognized and at t2 i recognize yes the space is variance but time is continuous like i saw you here and i see you here mm. could be simple example mm. i saw you here and recognized you tomorrow in some other place mm. or i saw you yesterday mm. tomorrow i rec- today i recognized you here now there is a space is different but time is more or less continuous if it is not continuous recognition makes no sense but there are instances where nobody has first person cognition of things like nobody has first person cognition of birth and death i always know about the birth or my birth from somebody else which is a third person okay somebody told me how that person died so the moment i die you know i'm gone yeah so that's why you know in philosophy both birth and death are not first person experiences so they are But would forever you, would, you, would you make a distinction between birth and death because at least in the case of birth i mean you you seem to come with this stored up memory which is maybe encoded in your genes or you neurally wired or whatever but but i recollect it i don't get it the way in which i get uh, the object in front of me yes i don't cognize my birth somebody else i infer which is what in philosophy is called testimony but if you were to <laughs> hypothetically speaking be able to be born again somehow would you would that that then suggest that you wouldn't recognize what was happening that's that a great question would be <laughs> yes that's a very interesting question chanan <laughs> but that would be inferring about my previous birth from this again you're again you know uh, struck with inference inference is a one of the important valid contesting resources of knowledge whether it is see there are certain things which are easily inferred that i know that i'm sitting in this room and i know that there is a room that is existing the other side okay it's common sense 
But from this, can I infer, can I use this argument for a larger purpose? Namely, from my other birth, can I infer my previous birth? That is uh, trespassing the domain of inference. So, it is not that rejection of the domain, rejection of inference per se, but when you use inference outside the domain, that amounts to trespassing. For instance, take the example of a materialist school of philosophers in India called Charvakas. Charvakas are the ones who accept only perception as a source of knowledge. Mm -hmm. They don't accept anything else. But then they come up with a serious problem. Because so in day-to-day -day life, day-to-day -day life, you know, how do I know that, you know, uh, somebody is cooking food at uh, home? So when I say that I'm going to have lunch, okay, I assume that somebody, I have not seen that uh, food is cooked at home. So I assume that somebody has cooked at home inferentially. That's why I say that I'm going there. So at that time, they make a distinction where they say, look, commonsensically, this is what is called as mitigated charvakas, commonsensically, Inference is acceptable. But if you use that road, that gate, that path to infer God, then they will say, no. Hmm. That would be trespassing, you know, your brief. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. If we, for a second, uh, go back to how we differentiate the world around us in a more epistemological kind of way, uh, Raghuram Raju. How does that work? I mean, are there interesting ideas in philosophy that help us think around it from the time we are born to the, to the early stages, the early critical period hypothesis and so on? Um, what, and let's, let's step away from the world of insects and birds for a, for a bit and come to the world of humans. Yeah. One way of looking at it is to, again, bring these two paradigms of Aristotle and, uh, and Descartes. Descartes. They are very, very important for me. Descartes comes up with two important arguments. One argument is that whole is prior to parts. Mm -hmm. Okay, there is no parts that make whole. According to him, there is a whole and parts are parts of that whole. That's one argument. Mm -hmm. But... In his book, Politics, he says, however, for analytical purposes, mm -hmm. you can disaggregate a whole into parts. Mm -hmm. What is a whole? Polis, that is, a society, is a whole. And that can be disaggregated into villages. Villages can be disaggregated into Communities. That's interesting. Communities can be disaggregated into families. Family can be disaggregated into individuals and possibly individuals. Eh? No. Hmm. Pair. 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 Man hmm. and woman. Mm -hmm. Okay. And pair cannot be dis disaggregated to individuals. Cannot, cannot be. Cannot be. What is the reason? Because for one person to come into existence, mm -hmm. you need two people coming in sexual union. Mm -hmm. So two is primary. And you might ask, how did that person come into existence? Because two people came in sexual union. How did that happen? Again, two people came in sexual union. Unless you believe in creationism. Sure. <laughs> so he's a biologist par excellence mm -hmm. who did not allow the one to come into existence. So if, <laughs> if you follow Aristotle carefully, there is no way you can have individual anthropocentrism. 
So entire modernity is subverted by him. Now, let me just you know contrast it with this. If you follow Aristotle, there is no way you can, you know, criticize him. There is no way you can, you know, go beyond him. It's Impossible we'll get to get back but, to him. But I have a problem here because there are some insects and there are some organisms which uh, propagate parthenogenetically. There is no male and female. I mean, the f and they, even even some lizards. Well, they're they, all they're all female. There are lot of, lot of, lot of <laughs> all are female. Yes, yeah. some lizards are all female, mm -hmm. and they they propagate. So there is no pairing in there in that. But about they, human they beings. Yes. They about human beings, something like this can happen. Is what Aristotle would ask you. Yeah, that's interesting. The Why answer yeah. came. Mm -hmm. The answer came in the way of Christianity. Mm -hmm. Where they came up with the notion of uh, yes. creation, uh, yes, things sure, like that. Sure. But just, think, just yeah. me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In contrast, if you look at uh, Descartes, Descartes completely saw this politics very clearly. He said that as long as you agree with Aristotle, as long as you, you know, tread his path, there is no way you can, you know, answer him. So he comes up with a very interesting move, where he says that. We are not interested in how children are born. Hmm. Philosophy is about when do a human being become an adult? Hmm? Sure. When do human being become an adult? Hmm. When do human being becomes a rational being? You know what is happening mm -hmm. here is he is jumping over mm -hmm. Aristotle. He knows that you know Aristotle sure, cannot be sure, sure. Uh, you know mm -hmm. uh, uh, answered at all. So he just says that when do we become adults and when do we become rational? That's why that whole modernity is branded as rational. Yeah, we'll we'll get back to that, Raju. Why don't we pick up the point I made a while ago about whole in parts mm. and for the, really for the for the for the if we go to the world of insects yeah. again, Shannon, yeah. the world that you are familiar with. And sorry, we are making you the spokesperson for them for, for the a bit. For the insects. For the insects. It's an honor. It's an honor. <laughs> yes, I think it is an honor. How, you have to speak How, how do they insects. perceive the world? How differentiated is it? Do they do they perceive the whole and then the parts? Or it starts I, the other way around? Yeah, I actually thought that was a very interesting point you made. It was a very linear. You you had a very linear process, right? But I mean, actually, this isn't specifically about insects, but at least in terms of our understanding of how objects are processed from a neurological perspective, it's not a linear process, right? Mm -hmm. It's extremely nonlinear. It's its a, uh, you know, being that I was living in Germany, it's a gestalt, right? Gestalt, it's this yeah. idea, it's systemic. Correct. It's this idea that actually you cannot break an object down into its parts, that if you add the parts together, they don't necessarily make yeah. the whole, which is what you were saying, actually. So, um, and from a neurological perspective, that's because the way the that brains process information is inherently nonlinear, mm -hmm. um, meaning that uh, if you take a bunch of things and put them together, you don't just essentially get uh, an orange or an apple. So you can't just take a sh color and a shape and a smell and put them together and poof, it's an apple, right? It's a nonlinear processing that goes that goes into play. And, and we're finding that to be true, actually, even with very simple brains like an insect, which has a, a comparatively, you know, one billion times less um, neurons in it than than the philosopher's brain. Mm. That's so. very interesting. And tell me, if we, if we so go to the world of kins and non-kins, for mm. example, mm. Um, we've, we've spoken about situations where there are no parents, but in those 
organisms that just come to be? Do they have an inherent understanding of who their kins are? So there can be, and it can come from very different places. So paper wasps, for example, since you said I'm the spokesperson for the insects, um, they know who their kin are by the smell of the nest. So if you put a wasp in a different nest and, you know, you give it the smell of another nest, it will be recognized even if it's not from that nest, right? Mm -hmm. Likewise, if you take a nest mate and you remove it from the nest and give it the smell of another nest, it will become killed, even though it's genetically akin. Right. So so it can be just based upon environment. So it's association. Correct. Mm. Um, mm. It can also be learned. It can be experientially based. Absolutely, learning is a huge part of identification and recognition. Also, even for something like a butterfly, you know, I said that they don't, they don't necessarily know what a plant is, but they certainly learn a lot about plants. You know, they learn, oh, the this flower has a lot of nectar. I'm going to keep visiting that one or I'm going to avoid that one. That one was really tasted terrible. I mean, they they learn a lot. All organisms learn and experience. And, and even if we have talked about innate behaviors, but if I, if I may, actually, you brought up another thing about recognition, which, of course, from my perspective, means we also have to talk about precognition, right? <laughs> Essentially. Yes. Since you talked about cognition and recognition, there would be the alternate, which is precognition. Yes. And I mean... Cognition is very difficult for me to talk about from an animal perspective because we we know so little about consciousness and things like that and how they actually and if they actually manifest themselves in in non-humans. But, um, you know, there there is a a system that that I'm also our group is working on where we have this this fly that's very specific to apples, okay? Mm-hmm. And I bring this up for a very specific reason, and that's that apples were not native to North America 200 years ago. But as soon as these apples were planted in North America, this fly was suddenly there. <laughs> and what we're finding, actually, at, through a lot of pro, a lot of uh, neurophysiology, a lot of behavior, a lot of uh, e- ecological experiments, is that actually they already had all of the ability to detect apples because all of their host plants were kind of aspects of an apple in some way or another. And actually when the apple came, it became kind of this ideal thing. So it's not precognition, but in some ways they were already set up to identify apples, even though they'd never had any experience with apples before. Wow. And that's a really interesting concept. So, the, so these wasps were already there? The, the, the flies were there. The flies were already the there? The flies have been there for millions of years, right? So, But the apples were not. But they, as soon as the apples were there, they suddenly were extremely, you know, they, they, they loved apples. They're specialized on apples. They don't like anything <laughs> else. They, the apple is their whole universe, right? So they, they don't love anything else anymore? No. No, just apples. Wow! And it, and it seems that it's it's because actually uh, their their nervous system already had all of the components to detect apples, even though they were not there yet. So that's an interesting concept, right? That you can actually be prepared to detect. So it's things recombinant in, a, in some way. You had yeah, parts of it yeah, in correct. different. Correct. Correct. Mm. Mm. But mm. it also sorry, it also could be uh, because the apple was not there, but the apple family was there. So, uh, hmm. like uh, some fruits which are uh, yes. related to apples, and the flies were dependent on that. Yeah. So when they got a better, better, better fruit, I mean, yeah. so they 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 all shifted to that. Yeah. I don't, I, ironically, I, that's that's yeah. not actually this in this case the, what happened yeah. because actually the related species which would were called crab apples and crab things apple, like that. Yeah. They have they absolutely hate. But what okay. happens is there was actually <laughs> aspects of all of their different plants that they did feed on that had a little bit of characteristics of an apple, and mm. because of 
at least what our current hypothesis is because of the way the brain processes nonlinearly, it became an apple when you put it all together. Mm, so at the yeah. apple was the guest art combination yeah. of Yeah, some that they other didn't even know they wanted, right? It's amazing. <laughs> it's like, it's what advertisers always want, right? They want to give you what you didn't even know you needed, right? That's so, yeah. But, uh, but, but in, uh, it happens in, uh, in nature, uh, particularly if you look at the, the biogeography of the different species, that uh, some, they may not be, like we have got the species which are found in the new world and which are in the so-called old world. And uh, when the species of the new world were brought to, to the old world in Asia and Africa and other places, and they found the habitat, very suitable habitat. Water hyacinth is one of the classical examples. It was not found in India and mm. or Asia mm. uh, or the old world. It was brought from South America, and now water hyacinth is all over the all over uh, every wetland, as if uh, wetlands were waiting or the water hyacinth was waiting to be uh, to be brought to. <laughs> it you know, found its home the, yes. finally. So it happens in in the case of many species. If you bring it to the new habitat or a new area, in which they have not reached naturally on their own, and uh, human assisted dispersal, what we, I call it, that human beings bringing it. So that's like very house interesting. Sparrow, house sparrow, house sparrow was not found in in America. Now probably there are more house sparrows in America than in Asia. Is that so? Yes, Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So because they found the nest. So not the, not all the species are in their best natural habitats. Some, uh, some of them I are, wouldn't say that way. Mm, uh, they are mm. they are possibly in the best natural habitat. We are you know, homogenizing the ecosystems and the species. Uh, starling is another species. Mm. I was I, I would like to comment on that. Starlings live in pairs, mm-hmm. but uh, and they recognize each other and like that. Uh, the males and females are similar, and they, we can't recognize. But probably they something recognize that Descartes would be okay with. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> when they are in the non-breeding season, they are found in millions, uh-huh. and they almost act as one organisms. Okay. Each starling becomes almost like a cell. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have this murmuration of the starlings where probably half a million starlings will come for roosting in the evening. Wow. And uh, they move around in a big way. And uh, there, there can be probably 100,000 starlings in a flock. And they move, they synchronize their movement. How do they do it? That is one something which is re, uh, remarkable. And uh, through the mathematical modeling I read in one of the papers, they found that one is uh, each starling has to coordinate with seven starlings around. And they live in the three-dimensional world. I mean, the, so it's a fractal of, of fractal, sorts. Yes. So, so seven, every, seven every create the starling whole is coordinating with that. <laughs> and then they, within seconds, they move that uh, almost like one organism. When you see the starling flock, it looks like uh, just just one human uh, organism. One organism. One, not not uh, half a million starlings. It's uh, very 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 interesting. It's very interesting. Tell me, I mean, we we let's go to the world of chicks, mm-hmm. uh, and that's that's a world which is very fascinating in many ways. And when sometimes they lay their eggs over nine or ten or eleven days, they hash together. Don't yes, they? yes. So what happens? They communicate with each other. How do they recognize each other? What's happening there? Yes, it has been shown uh, because uh, they, uh, I'll just give a b- uh, brief background. There, there, there are species which lay two eggs or so one leg. Uh, very few species lay one egg, uh, but there are many species which lay eight or ten eggs. And eight or ten eggs. If there are ten eggs, then it means the nine days. Uh, each one egg is laid in a, in a day, or nine or ten days. So and then the the, the female or the parents 
once it starts sitting, it they they're not necessarily incubating them, but at least they are protecting it. So the first egg is almost ten days older than the last egg. Yes. But in the in the precocial birds, they all have to hatch together. Yes. Because if the parents have to take the chicks away, and they can't leave eight uh, chicks behind just because two chicks have hatched early. So what generally happens in the even in the even uh, they. First of all, the parents start incubating when almost the last few eggs are being laid, mm-hmm. and uh, then there is a sort of a prenatal uh, communication between the eggs, even the chicks, and they that sort of synchronize. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's not creepy; it is very interesting, <laughs> uh, and somehow they synchronize their hatching. So the <laughs> earlier uh, laid eggs, the chicks will delay the hatching. And the the later X will accelerate. Uh, they accelerate, accelerate, not too much. We can't sure. accelerate. Is not a is not a machine to do it. Sure. But at least it has been seen that all the chicks, more most of the chicks, hatch at the same more time, or less at the same time. Same time. That's why they are the mothers, are mother or our parents are able to take all the eggs away. Sometimes uh, there are some late comers, and in nature the late comers have to die. Just <laughs> they have to be left out because you can't uh, jeopardize ten chicks for the sake of one uh, egg, which is taking its own time to. Uh, this is hatch. very interesting. So, what's so happening there? Chemicals at work, like chemicals work? as well as their their communication. As soon as they put their um, beak in the there is in the egg, there is a space and a yolk. So they communicate and possibly they. So also these eggshells are permeable. Eggshells, yes, they are eggshells are permeable, mm-hmm. and they also communicate with mother. Mm. So, see, is a communication between the uh, unhatched chicks, uh, not in the uh, earlier stages, but the later stages. How do they communicate by sound? By, by sound. By, by sound. sound. Possibly oh. by chemical, but mainly by sound. You will always hear very small, and then when the when the chicks are going to hatch in two or three days before, the mother starts making clicking sound, which the chicks can uh, hear it. So it is is uh, sort so of a time to <laughs> <so> go, time, <laughs> time to come out. <laughs> That's so it, very it, very it very happens. interesting. Mm-hmm. What roles do chemicals play? Let's talk about olfaction for a bit. I mean, is is there a special place in some way for just just? Well, you you mentioned. I mean, the the that sound. I mean, so so for for humans, actually, that's one of the roles that olfaction can play because, uh, they uh child in the womb actually the the sounds will be highly altered right by the yes. from the outside world and of course they can't see yes. so actually chemicals are some of the the best ways that they they can use to commu- to recognize things as soon as they're born so so the recognition of of the smell of a mother and 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 the smell of finding finding the nipple to feed mm. is actually uh, one of the the earliest forms of identification um and mothers can actually recognize their own babies within by smell. Yeah, by smell. Within one hour of birth, they have found actually. Mm-hmm. And and the newborn babies recognize their mothers by yes, smell. Yes, yes. They've done these really f- fun studies. What happens they... to the poor father? There's... <laughs> so 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 fathers. It's it's a slower process. Okay. It's a much more. It's a, it takes a longer time. It takes a lot of association with babies. And and I mean, even when my daughter was born, they've they're now doing a lot of you know, interactions with the, the child and the father now in, in most in most countries where they actually spend have a lot of time because they recognize that that's a very important. Um, and so are the kins able to recognize each other by smell, by odor? 
across species, at least in some species? Yeah, yes. I mean, kin recognition is is very well known across yeah. many, many different species. Yeah. I mean, it's really important, right, for, for a number of reasons. So one is, of course, if you're social, you, you have to know who your kin are. But also, I mean, for a mating partner, it's also important to know who you're related to and who you're not related to because obviously oh. you want to increase heterogeneity, right? So you want to <laughs> mate with somebody who's less like you. So... So that's also very important. So. That's very interesting. And I mean, mm. for us, it's mainly, we're mainly identifying and recognizing based upon sight and then secondarily by sound. But but there is also evidence that, that we can recognize who we're related to by, by smell. We can recognize our mates by smell. We recognize our children by smell. So mm. we can even recognize friends by smell, right? So... Mm. And like so, friends by yeah. Smell. <laughs> yeah. and this is uh, this recognition by smell is much more prevalent in the species which live in big flocks or colonies okay because uh, like penguins like penguins uh, they, they they again they have probably half a million penguins uh, and then they all hatch or uh, chicks are born and then the parents go for quite uh, for for many days sometimes they have to walk 100 uh, kilometers to go to the sea and then they remain in the sea for 3 or 4 days sometimes 10 days and then they come back and uh, they they come back and feed their own chick and out, out the, of out uh, of the thousands, thousands of millions of millions of chicks uh, what generally happens in the penguins is in in some species, it is a spot which you recognize because the chick will remain in the spot, sure. but not for. Uh, un, um, you know, but in the case of the penguins, they also have a crèche system where all the chicks of one age group are uh, are brought into uh, in one crèche, and uh, so there will be some parents they who will be looking crash. after. Uh, yes, they have a, they have a crèche. It is known as a penguin crèche, and the parent will come back after couple of days and he'll go straight to the, his own chick how do they recognize from 50,000 chicks so Ramani, the same we're, getting, <laughs> we're getting mis- mysteries after mysteries, mysteries from you yes, this is, nature is give us some so solutions so, so this is by so, smell this is uh, possibly by call because birds do not have such a uh, good smell mm-hmm. most of the birds so do the not calls have, must be very distinct very from each distinct. other distinct uh, possibly call we do not know still do not know uh, in the case of wildebeest, which uh, again I am talking about uh, thousands, again, hundreds thousands of thousands, mm. they uh, all are born in three or four weeks' time, mm-hmm. and all will have the calf will be of the same group, and sometimes they, they are lost. Then uh, they recognize their mother as soon as they are born. It is known as a imprinting. As mm-hmm. soon as they are born, their mother will, uh, as she said, as Shannon said that uh, they recognize each other. Mother calf and mother will recognize each other through the uh, hormone or pheromones and the smell. And uh, even if the calf is uh, separated. It, mother will find it and the calf will find it and it will go back to the mother. It makes but sense it, because, I mean, babies change so much physically, right? They're, 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 the call will change because they'll get bigger and so they're... they're their you know, vocal cords yeah, or whatever, they're and changing they will all look, the time. I mean, they will look completely different, right? The smells are more consistent, odors right, are more consistent. Because a lot of a lot of odor, human odor and, and animal odor and even insect odor is driven a lot by the environment that they're in and so mm. that's one thing. Sure. Also, it's driven by the uh, the 
the microbial community that's present. And mm. that's also controlled partially by the immune system, which mm. is a genetic, genetically encoded uh, entity. So actually, mm. there is a lot of consistency with smell where there might not be consistency necessarily with a visual or an auditory cues. So when you think about when olfaction is important or vision, you also have to think about the organism and what why the organism would need one thing or another. I mean, insects can't see very well. Most insects can't hear. They can hear some tones or vibrations, but they don't have any ears like we have. Sure. Or birds, for example. Sure. But, um, but, and their eyes are very poor. They have compound eyes, which are really good at seeing fast moving things. As you know it, and you swat a fly, they sure. move really fast. But they can't. Ha- they don't have acuity, so you are a giant blur to them. Sure. A- unless they're very close to you. So odors really. That's that's it. That's, that's what the they've. Sense. That's what they've got. So if they're going <laughs> to identify something and recognize it, it's odor or it's nothing. So I mean, so it's not that you know. It's not that they're special in any way. They're just using what is available to them. So right mm. in that way. That that so. faculty is very well developed in the in the in many species like dogs. <laughs> Dogs have possibly probably one one thousand to ten thousand um, uh, 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 power compared to the human beings. Mm-hmm. I mean, they mm-hmm. recognize people, they recognize street, they recognize everything. They live in the old world of order. Actually, God, uh, dogs' world is order. <laughs> is they they know that, and you can sometimes you can see from the expression of a dog, even with a stray dog. They will recognize you that this man walks every day in this street, so he's a harmless person. Mm-hmm. I will not, bar- I'll not waste my time in barking on him. But if a new person comes, they recognize it as this man. And we can change address how much yes. ever we want: grow yes, up here, yes. grow tall, grow <laughs> yes. short, have a fracture. But and that also <laughs> makes sense because if they're hunting at night, right? Visual mm-hmm. cues are not going to be very reliable. Yes, so yes. using odor, yeah, odor makes sense, yes. right? I mean, and this is also the case uh, about our words for odors, right? And that I, I'm mentioned before, but uh, this doctor of psycholinguistics, Asifa Majid, she studies human concepts of odor and smell and language of odor. And she's found that the the only societies that she can find that have actually words for smells, meaning not associative words, but words like red and blue, are, are groups of people who are also primarily nocturnal hunters, right? They're hunting in or dark and uh, deep in the jungle where where visual cues are not reliable. Yeah. So then they actually have words See, for... Then you don't say it smells like orange, but you right. say... They have, whatever that smell they have is, a, you have a name yeah, for it. Yeah, exactly. They have a word for uh, for a, the the bad a bad smell of blood that attracts tigers, which is a it's a very specific smell, and it's of course very important to them because they don't <laughs> want to be attracting tigers, right? It's so. very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very interesting. Raghuram Raju, maybe we go to a world where um, we go to the apoha, the the concept that you've spoken about a few times. The we how we recognize something not only by what it is but what it is not. Yeah. And See, I I think if you move from the world of facts that uh, yes. uh, Shannon and uh, uh, Sir has Ramanisab uh, has um, yeah. know, very uh, lucidly and yes. you know very interestingly you know presented. If you enter into the both the human domain mm-hmm. and also also speculative domain of philosophy, mm-hmm. now you have something very interesting about uh, identification. Mm-hmm. Okay, the identification has three important facets. One is self-identification, and the other one is other identification. Now, 
the point that comes out very clearly is there is one school of thought that clearly says that I identify what is in front of me. I identify what is the case. Okay. Now, once I know that I know about this, then I start using it. Uh-huh. Okay, uh-huh. I know that this is the water, so I can drink it. Sure. Now, I know that this is a knife, so I can use it to whatever purpose that sure. it has. Sure. Buddhism has a very interesting notion of knowledge, mm-hmm. according to which knowledge does not consist in knowing what it is, but what it is not. Mm-hmm. That is, it is not that I know that this is the water, mm-hmm. but I know that this is not a poison. Mm. This is not a dirty thing. Mm. This is not an object. By exclusion. And what ah, that exclusion, what it is wow. not is mm. infinite. Mm. So once you go after what it is not, then you don't come back. Yeah. <laughs> so that is the salvation saying that in other words, they would say that there is nothing like what it is. Yeah. It is a combination of what it is not. So the question that we have to ask is try to use an object without knowing what it is not. Mm-hmm. Is it humanly possible? Now, ask another question, which is, is it possible for a human being not to have knowledge? Not to know. Not to know. Mm-hmm. For instance, I can decide not to eat food. You know, I can fast. Okay. I can do, I, I mean, a lot of natural desires I can refrain from, I can postpone them. But is it, see, we, most of the time we ask this question, we don't know enough. I mean, mm. science mm. builds on that uh, yes. you know, yes. premise yes. 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 that we don't know enough. <laughs> yes. But the counter question that philosophy would ask is, mm. is it possible for human being mm. to refrain from knowing? Is it an option? At is all? it not option? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if I am a higher species, mm. I think I should be able to, you know, I mean, uh, exercise that option. Because if I can defer my desires as a human being... What do you mean by not know, Raghuram Raju? That, like, I don't want to eat. Hmm. In the similar way... So can you... Call, so when the mosquito comes into the world, does it have or an it option to not know? No, it doesn't have. But does I, Even human beings, mm-hmm. he may have or she may have option not to eat, not to mate, not to do this, that. But we have not asked this crude question. And that is a question that comes out when, from Buddhism. Who asked this very fundamental thing saying, knowledge consists not in knowing what it is, but what it is not. But, but how can you avoid knowing something if you don't know it? That's, a, that's the kind of thing. That <laughs> in, the, in the act of what it is not, right. that is knowledge. I see. That is, that is knowledge. Now, the other kind of thing that comes out very clearly in this discussion is, is it possible for me to have self-identity without a notion of other identity? Do I exist here without Shannon or um, Romanisa? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. No, because the entire conversation I am talking now, mm-hmm. not because I want to talk. My talk is mediated by their presence, mm-hmm. by the entire thing. So in other words, in that sense, it is not my talk in a strict sense of the term. It is a talk where everybody, their gaze, their presence, their body, their, you know, all the things intervene. So 
so that's the reason why so that's ecology for you uh, that is a human ecology <laughs> where you cannot isolate identity as yours let me just give you a simple example when we say in logic a is a it's a identity yeah you know nobody believes uh, nobody contradicts this thing that a is a but suppose if i ask you 2 plus 2 is equal to 4 is it identity is 4 identical with 2 plus 2 no hmm. no hmm. of course not hmm. in the sense plus reference way you yes. have to frame in question more yeah. importantly hmm. they would say that two drops of water plus two drops of water does not make four drops of water unless you add qualifications hmm. Hmm. so it's not that identity stops there take another example of identity the sun that you saw today in the morning is it the same sun that you saw earlier yesterday mm, no or same or is it identical if it is not identical why do you call it as sun yeah <laughs> why do you use a you know why is the identity merely in name not in object and the inductivists have proposed that sun will definitely rise tomorrow because sun rose every day till today hmm. so i'll say that every day sun will rise tomorrow the deductivist questioned them saying all that every you know morning sun will rise includes past present and future hmm. now you have a data about past and present how hmm. can you transpose into future and make a statement about all hmm. now in fact sometime i raised this question uh, where i said uh, for instance there is a flaw in this argument namely it is not that there will be a tomorrow and then sun will rise because for tomorrow to be there sun has to rise mm -hmm. <laughs> is a different way of right. saying the same thing right. okay so to say that you know sun will not rise tomorrow it may not not because there will be tomorrow and then sun will not rise <laughs> okay sun, sun may not rise tomorrow that, i am quite agree poser, with that that poser presupposes that this okay will... <laughs> but there will not be tomorrow interesting so, in that sense you know the identity question in a speculative domain looks bizarre but it's it is a fright of imagination where you know one looks at um, is it possible for me to know about myself is there something called certain that i can say that gives me identity so if we, if we, if we carry this into your worlds uh, clearly the environment and the world around us is changing all the time so the the genes are getting modified all the time is the evolution yes. well, well he, he you say you, you're separating philosophy and natural science but actually a lot of the concepts you brought up are really pertinent concepts in neuroscience right now particularly this concept this buddhist concept which i actually don't even think anyone's linked at, well maybe i haven't read any papers that have done sure. it but actually this idea um what that also not. the brain actually that's actually part of its recognition is that it recognizes what it's what is not or what is or the uh, the bad it recognizes the bad more than the good i mean it's very well known for for animals animal, any animal behavior including children's behavior that it's much easier to give them negative reinforcement than positive reinforcement it's it's much mm. easier to teach them what is bad than what is good right mm. i mean mm. and this is i it's an interesting connection right and it's interesting if also philosophical standpoint if that also relates because you know we yeah. 
think yeah. about it with our brains, and that's really how our brains are programmed to identify things. Yeah, so, so in a way, this notion of self-identity is kind of imposed in what you perceive. Right, in, in many, exactly. Many so what's the future? Why don't we spend the last five minutes thinking about the future of some of the open questions here? Um, what are the open questions in your world? Mm-hmm. What are the open questions mm-hmm. in your world? <laughs> let, us, let, us, he, let us think. Yeah, you're in conservation. Yeah. I think you should really start. Mm-hmm. start. So, I just uh, open questions of uh, on of, on of of recognition of how how you know I, mean, I th- we we I mean you've opened a lot of mysteries today. Are these likely to be solved? Yes, they they should be solved because uh, of what we say in science. I mean, science is always a developing thing. I mean, it's yeah. not never static. Is is uh, it it has to grow and it it grows all the time. So will we know so someday how the see, bird we, from Bombay flies back to yes, Africa? Yes, yes, yes. Certainly, if we know all these things, then possibly, uh, and if we implement or if we use the same uh, mechanism, I would say the 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 mechanism which the birds use for long distance. Migration. So, if we use the same mechanism for in our aircrafts, possibly the machine will be much much smaller. Yeah. Mm, possibly, possibly the birds are using the magnetic fields, and uh, the whole world is also full of magnetic fields, which we do not know. We cannot recognize. The birds do it. Many animals do it. Like the like, for example, the turtles or sea turtles, and sea turtles are uh, hatched in a particular uh, uh, sea sea beach, and then once they hatch, they go to the sea, and they spend probably another forty uh, twenty years before they come back to the same beach again for laying eggs, and in during that twenty years time when they are growing, they 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 move around in millions of square kilometer. But how do they come back to the same beach where they were born? Are these, we still do not are these know. practical questions? Yes, will they be they known are, someday? They will be known someday. Good, uh, ma- good. Migration of the salmon. Salmon also migrates and uh, lays eggs in, uh, in the high streams. Excellent. And then he spends all his life in the sea and then come back. Migration of the butterflies. Uh, the monarch butterfly in America, which is uh, which take, they migrate almost 3,000 kilometers. But not the same individual. Because they they lay eggs and the other other generation migrates for generational migration. Generational migration. Excellent. So there are all very mysterious things which we. Shannon, what what is your take on this? The thing I wonder, you know, you've mentioned the turtles, right? I mean, after twenty years, if it's a beach that they're coming back to, going to be there. I mean, when I think about the future, and I mean, especially me living in Bangalore, which is perhaps the most dynamic place I've ever experienced in my life in terms of how much it changes over such a short period of time. I mean, (laughs) they say we're in the Anthropocene era, right? I've heard this many times. We are in this era where humans are are exhibiting such a profound impact on the environment, not necessarily with climate change, but just with building cities and changing their, you know, the the way the whole, they change the the ecology around them, right? So how organisms recognize things Actually, are we, we'll, are we, we are changing what they recognize. Yeah. We are we are creating new things that they now have to recognize. Like we're creating uh, cell phone towers, right? I mean that that suddenly are objects in the environment. It's one that, of the things they need to correct contend so, with in some way. Right, yeah. exactly. And sometimes it's extremely difficult to predict what an organism will and will not recognize mainly because we still know so little about yes. actually how animals do behave and and we we can't even uh we can't even elucidate the uh, uh, worms behavior yet 
Not yet. We're getting yeah. close. Yeah. But why a worm goes to an area with sugar and how it does that, it's, we still don't quite know. The simple, simple decision. There's been a long way to go. Hmm. Do you feel optimistic? 500 years I out? I feel optimistic, but it's a, it's a moving target. Because if we know, if we know how <laughs> because this because the environment is not static, right? Yeah. It, and, but it, it never is. It, it never it would never be, is. whether humans are involved or not. I mean, yes. organisms change each other's yes. environments. That's the definition of correct. Organism. Correct. Yeah. So it's which is the time scale, which is important. Exactly. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Yeah. Time scale was a. Now yeah. everything is being in the mm. in this Anthropocene world. Everything is now uh, time scale has shortened. I mean, the changes t- used to take place. What is your take, Raghuram Raju? What's, what's your take on the questions that Shannon and Ramani Saab are going after? Do you feel, as a philosopher, for a second, and if you had to contend and comment on what <laughs> they're going after, are, are these tractable questions? You yeah. Have, you have yeah. to answer them. Yeah, yeah. you know, uh, you take on the last sentence of Ramani Saab's uh, thing and also the point that Shannon made. I think uh, one of the major problems that we have uh, is not in terms of um, giving solutions, but not able to ask proper questions. Because if you ask proper question, then solutions are already there. Because as a teacher, when I set my question papers to my students, it is not that I don't know the answers. I know the answers. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Okay. We, we, they we, don't know we the answers. They don't know the answers. <laughs> they don't know the answers. That's so the I cannot say that, you know, I mean, uh, I am setting a question paper uh, for which I don't uh, know the answers. So let me use that, uh, that format. And I think uh, what is happening today in India particularly is, or also in the West is, we are past tensing a present continuation. Mm-hmm. So whenever we come up with something and we think that, you know, now things have, all problems are solved. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the reason why we say that all problems are solved is because we have not posed a proper question. Mm-hmm. We are answering our question. It is not that it is a half an answer. It is not bec- it is because it is a, not a good question to which it is offered as an answer, which is what I cryptically called as we are past tensing a present continuation. Mm-hmm. We are thinking that, you know, that all these insects will disappear, then they will become like this, the sign, you know, the research will end and all these problems will be solved. I think, you know, we really have to move from the site of answers to the site of questions. Sure. And sure. ask that thing. And sure. it is in this context, uh, I find, for instance, there is this uh, wonderful Greek uh, uh, film mm-hmm. called Eternity and a Day. So if you ask me when will all these all all uns, you know all all questions will be answered yes my answer is eternity and a day <laughs> eternity <laughs> plus a day or and a day and it's, a, it's a Greek movie. Infinite plus one. Yes. No, what's so this, this episode will go one. on for a long time. Yes, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And finally, mm. about I think our major problem is our inability to tackle the notion of time. Mm-hmm. Because mm. we are saying it will happen tomorrow. I mean, there is this astrological sense in us saying that no, 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 this is going to happen tomorrow. Sure. That reassurance that we are giving to ourselves sure. because of our own insecurity problems. It is not going to be that. Sure. Because one of the major uh, combinations that came to us from modernity mm-hmm. is that there was pre modern, which was disinherited. 
mm-hmm. and that gave rise to modernity. Mm-hmm. Though Christianity was one that stood stubbornly against this force sure. um, in the West and then Islam in the you know Arabic uh, uh, countries. In India, along these lines, what we have is a coexistence of mm. both pre-modern and modern. Mm. Now that does not give an easy kind of an aberrations only. Mm. It gives a very interesting, you know, uh, given. There is a very good interaction going on between the pre-modern and the modern. Now we have to be very careful in not, uh, you know, in taking into account the two different kind of denominators. The one that belongs to pre-modern in a plural way, the other one that belongs to modern in a way. And then see how they are interacting. What is the different way of negotiating the pre-modern and the modern? Sure. Not to endorse one or this the side other. or that side. Yeah. Because today the major problem is we are only attending to problems. We are not seeing <laughs> we are not seeing the phenomena from where the problem arises. Mm. The descriptions are important and sometimes descriptions are not good, they are bad, they are condemnable. Simply because they are condemnable, let us not refrain from describing. Sure, sure. Because they are condemnable, we must first describe them and identify the problem from where that you know, problem comes mm. and then you know, look what can be done. Thank you. This is what thank you. Thank you. Very interesting. Very interesting. Thank you to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you all soon again. Thank Thank you you so much. Thank you. Take care. Thanks. Thanks.